States and enjoyed a, a nice, warm week in a, near Tampa Bay. And while we were gone, a lot of people would say, you know, make sure when you come back to bring the weather with you. So I got to say, you're welcome. I, I haven't needed my coat since I returned. I think the last day of winter is on Tuesday. So 80 degrees in winter, we'll take that any day, right? It got me thinking, can you imagine if a weatherman one day just, just starts switching the weather? Because it always gets me how, how when uh, they give a seven-day forecast, the anchor's always like, thanks for that forecast. And it's like, the weatherman just told you what's happening. It's not like they made it happen. And they're thanking them. And I just think, that's, that's, that's odd. And I thought, what if one day the weatherman wanted to be just kind of egotistical because he knows or she knows that people love it when there's a great forecast. So instead of say, 57 degrees seven days from now, they just switch the numbers and put 75. So what's stopping them from doing that? Right? They can kind of tickle people's ears thinking, oh, in seven days it's going to be 75 degrees. And, and you can really play with people's emotions like that. And of course, that, that kind of dishonesty is, is, is unaccepted in, in, the, in the news, in the media. It's just, you, can't, you can't do that because, you know, seven days from now, people are going to find out that you're, you're wrong. And then he'll be losing his job. Well, that, that kind of dishonesty is not accepted in the media, nor, nor should it be accepted inside the church. You know, there are, there are people who are dishonest about the truth of God's Word because they departed from the Bible, and they go off their own wisdom. And they might paint a picture that might seem appealing to people, tickle people's ears, and at the end of the day, that message won't deliver. When Christ returns, that message won't stand. In fact, there was one TV preacher that just recently put out on YouTube. He stated this quote very proudly. He says, Many have told me that I redefined the Christian message. I had to. And it resonated. God flourished my ministry and my career of creative thinking, communicating, and writing. You notice what he said here? He redefined the Christian message. That is dangerous ground to tread on. See, we are people of the book. We are people of God's Word. We submit ourselves to its authority. We don't redefine it. We proclaim it. And we have made it our ambition over uh, this, this year in 2012 to unpack the book of Ephesians to better understand the good news, the gospel that God has come to save people. We're not redefining that message we're telling you what the Bible says about it. And one of the greatest joys that we've had as leadership is hearing people say, I understand the gospel better because we're going through Ephesians. What, what a joy it is to hear that. Over the first three chapters, we've seen different themes that have, that have come out of these, this book. We've seen how we as humans are sinful people. How we are objects of wrath. That's to say, because we have fallen short of God's glory, He in His justice will condemn sin. As sinful people, we are deserving of it. But God in His mercy has withheld judgment, and by His grace He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to offer us salvation, forgiveness of sins. That's good news. That's not redefining the message. That's declaring what's there. That's at the heart of our calling. If you remember in chapter 1, Paul writes that, that God chose us before the foundations of the earth. That he predestined us for adoption. He adopted us into his family. We who were, who were hostile to our God 
God says, no, I want you part of my family. I'm going to redeem you from your slavery to self and to sin. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit to seal you and guarantee your eternal inheritance. It's because of my grace I'm saving you. That's, that's the beauty of the calling of the Christian. And with that beautiful gospel comes the burden for us then to tell others about it. This, this is our calling, brothers and sisters. And what a privilege we have. We don't redefine the message. We proclaim what the Bible itself teaches. And we've seen this over the first three chapters of Ephesians. Today we begin in chapter 4. And a transition takes place in the book. The first three chapters were heavy on doctrine. Whereas the final three chapters are heavy on application. And what we see is God has laid out a calling for us. And it's our responsibility to live in light of that calling. We've got to walk worthy of it. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Now begin at verse 1. Paul tells the believers here, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The word walk shows up six times in the final four, uh, three chapters of the book. Because it's about how we walk as Christians. How we live a life that reflects the fact that God has saved us. And Paul says, I urge you. I'm pleading with you. I'm a prisoner here. So listen to me, please. Walk worthy of the gospel. Walk worthy of your calling. It's like Paul saying, there's no sacrifice too high, too great that you can make to live out your faith. And tell others about him. I'm in prison here, he's saying. There's no sacrifice too great. He says, I urge you to walk out. Walk out your calling. And this is what we're going to see in, this, in, in these uh, verses to follow. Is what it means to walk out our calling. Now he says, I urge you, therefore. I urge you. You. The word you is, in plur- is a plural word here in the Greek. So it's like he's saying, I urge you all, or like I heard in Tennessee, I urge y'all to walk worthy of the calling. And this is, this is the crux of the passage. To live out our Christian faith means we've got to walk together in community. We need one another. God has hardwired us that way. You cannot grow spiritually by yourself. You can't. Could God make that happen? God is all-powerful. He could do whatever. But He has chosen to work through the avenues of community to grow us up. Which is why it's so important for us to come together every week like we do. And and, and celebrate the Lord together. Rub shoulders with one another. Sharpen each other. This is why the the monks in the Middle Ages had it so wrong. There's a man named Simeon Stelites. He spent 37 years on top of a pole. You see, he was a monk, and people kept coming to him for advice, and he got tired of it. He says, I just need some time alone with God to grow. So he erected a 15-foot pole, and he climbed it and sat on top of it and said, well, I'm getting my space now. And over the years, people began to make bigger poles for him. So that by the time of his death in the year 459, he was sitting atop a 45-foot pole, having spent 37 years up there. He had kids from the community climb the pole to give him food, and don't ask me how he relieved himself, I don't know. But he spent 37 years up there just to get away. 
But that's so counter the way God has made us. We're not supposed to get away from people. We're supposed to be in community. Now, surely we, we need solitude. We, we need our space at times. But we need each other. And some of us here are a lot closer to Simeon than we'd like to acknowledge. And we isolate ourselves from people. We, we push people who care about us away. And when we come to church, we sneak out during, during the ending real quick so we don't have any conversations with people because we don't want anyone into our lives. We're, we got our, we're sitting on our pole. And when we do talk, we don't let it get beyond the surface. We talk about the weather or about the game yesterday or about work, but never about our hurts. And we need each other. We need to go deeper with one another. You need one another. You need people to ask you the hard questions. You need people who are, who are going to pray with you, who are going to cry with you, who are going to rejoice with you. And guess what? You've got to be that person to others as well. We need each other in community. And this is what Paul's going to lay out for us. In fact, he talks about three important dynamics of community that we all got to be a part of if we're going to grow up spiritually. In the first few verses, we're going to see that he talks about our own personal character as individuals. That we've got to be men and women of character. People of virtue, letting God do a work in us. And then in verses 4, 5, and 6, we're going to see that we also got to be people who are diligent in preserving unity. Because if we're going to sharpen one another, we've got to be unified. And at the end of the chapter, we're going to see how we need to be people who use our spiritual gifts to build one another up. So these three things, our personal character, preserving unity, and using our gifts, are important if we're going to function as a healthy body. Because we desperately need one another. Well, let's look at the first few verses. Verses 1, 2, and 3, I'm going to read for you here. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If we're going to walk in community, we have to be men and women of character. He lists seven different character traits here. He opens up humility, and he, calls, he says humility and gentleness. To be humble is to put yourself lower than others. And sometimes it's best defined by what the opposite of humility what the opposite of humility is, and that's pride. See, pride elevates ourselves. It draws attention to ourselves. And if we're going to be prideful, we can't encourage one another because we're only concerned about ourselves. You know, it reminds me how pride is so deeply embedded in all of us. Just the other day, I was throwing out the trash, and the minute I opened up a lid, this huge fly came shooting right out. And I was like, man, this guy's like eager to get out of here. So I threw the garbage can, I started thinking about it. Probably started out as a little maggot in there, grew, became this, this full-grown fly. And it was in that garbage can the whole time, just waiting for an opportunity to escape. And the minute the, the lid was even cracked open, the fly came shooting out, that nasty fly. And, and that's how pride is in our own hearts. We can lay it low, but if we give it an opportunity, it will rear its ugly head. And it will divide us. Because it's only concerned about me. And Paul says, we've got to pursue humility, church. We've got to be humble people who are looking out for others and not concerned about ourselves. 
You know, God uses strong language when he talks about pride. Jesus says in Matthew 18, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But then he goes on to say in Luke 14, 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So if we're going to pursue pride, God's going to humble us. And if we walk in humility, God says, That's the character I want in you. Paul writes in Philippians, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, that's how we're going to encourage each other. Good news. It's looking out for others saying, no, your, your needs are important to me, even more important than my own right now. I want to serve you. James says it this way. He says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Just think about that. God is against a prideful heart. He is against it. He opposes it. But he gives grace to those who are humble. See, God wants to develop humility in us, and we've got to surrender our own self to let him do that. Because by nature, we're prideful people. I'll tell you a story. When I was dating Erica in high school, uh, we were playing basketball at Inner Inner City Impact over at ICI. And I remember that she was sitting on the stairs watching me play basketball. And I was running down the court, and this guy had the ball, and I, I was on defense, and I thought, you know, if I could run down and block him, I'll really impress her. So I took off as fast as I can, and I, I jumped as high as I could. The only problem is the guy pump faked, which is he didn't jump. And I went flying over him, foot got caught on his back, flipped over, and landed on the floor. Later on, I asked her, she's like, oh, I turned my head when you jumped. I just saw you on the floor afterward. said... See, pride, pride is an ugly thing and it can lead to some really awful consequences. And God needs to humble us. And sometimes the humbling process, that's painful. I could talk humorously of that situation, but we've had some painful, humbling lessons. But we can rejoice in that because that's what God wants us to be, is humble. Paul says, walk worthy of your calling, church. If we're going to build each other up, You've got to walk in humility, and you've got to walk in gentleness. But he says you also got to walk in patience. You've got to have patience. You know, one thing about impatience is it shows the lack of trust. It's so hard to wait on God, isn't it? And the reason it's hard to wait is because in some ways we don't trust Him. Well, God, we want it now because I, I don't want to wait because I don't know what it's going to be like. I think of King David, how, how impressive his patience was. He was anointed the king of Israel, but he wasn't given the throne. And it's like God was saying, just wait. I'll give it to you at the right time. And God used that season of waiting for him, being chased around by King Saul, to make David the man of God that God wanted him to be. David learned to pray. He learned to lean on the Lord. He learned to wait on God. He learned to trust him. So that when he became king, he was the mightiest king Israel had ever seen. And God wants to develop patience in us. And so often we we don't let life slow down enough to even stop and think and let God do that. Even when we come to church, so often we're sitting here, we start thinking, okay, what am I going to do afterward? Where where am I going to go? What's on TV? Whose house am I going to visit? And we're we're always on the go. We can take part in worship, but then we're out. And we never stop enough to even look around. I mean, look around. Who's not here today? Look around. 
Who are you not seeing? See, usually we don't stop even a little bit enough to look around. Call that person that you acknowledge right now. Call them and say, I noticed you weren't here. So I'll let you know I noticed that I missed you. See, that's what it, what it means to just slow down, to trust God, and to live in community in that way. Paul says we need to be humble, gentle, be patient. And then thirdly, he says that we need to bear with one another in love. Or as the New Living Translation says, we need to make allowances for each other's faults. See, this is, this is the hard thing about community, is that I'm fallen and you're fallen. You mess up, I mess up. I will let you down, you will let me down. How do we respond then? Paul says you've got to bear with one another's shortcomings, and you've got to do it with love. Sometimes we treat each other like I treat a dog when I go out for a run. See, ever since I was a little kid and this dog named Bullet came running after me and bit my shirt, I'm afraid of dogs, stray dogs. It could be a big one, it could be a little one. And even little ones, I'm usually trying to, you know, muster some courage, but even a poodle could be a, could be a, a wolf, you know? They, they, they scare me. And yet, so when I go out for a run, I cross the street when I see a dog. I tiptoe. I don't even look at it. I try to not acknowledge it. I don't even want it to know that I'm here. And when I get past, I'm relieved. So often we treat people like that, don't we? Oh, there, there he is. Oh, let's I'm gonna go this way. Try, try to hide. Don't make eye contact because then they'll see that I saw them. Then we gotta talk, and I don't want to talk because then we go on and on and on. And some of us are like, you know what? I'll, I'll bear with them. I'll put up with this person. Sure, let's talk. And we're short. We're like, okay, okay, all right, all right. Uh, okay, good talking with you. See ya. But that's that's not bearing in love. Love stops to see what's going on in this person's life. Love stops to ask. How are you doing? It puts our own selves second. It puts their needs first. It doesn't mean we become a floor mat. It doesn't mean we get trampled on. But we've got to bear with one another in love if we're going to sharpen one another and grow each other spiritually. And that's what God wants for us. Jesus was the greatest example of bearing with people's shortcomings. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? Wee little man was he? in the sycamore tree, and Jesus said, Zacchaeus, you come down, because I'm going to your house today. The guy that nobody liked, the guy who extorted money from people, Jesus says, I'm taking time with you. I want to love on you so you can see the truth. Or the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, Jesus showed love and forgiveness when she acknowledged her wrong. Or how about an example we're all very close to? The person in the mirror when we look at it. How prone to wander we are, right? How God in His great mercy bears with us in love because He's adopted us into His family and said, I love you. And yet, so often we don't show that same kind of love to our brother. We've got to bear with one another in love. If we're going to function as a community, and push each other to look more and more like Jesus and less like the world that we live in. A fifth thing he mentions here, he says, we also need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's verse 3. And this leads us to our second point. If you remember at the beginning of the sermon, I said we've got to look at three different things. The first one's our personal character. We've got to be people of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. But the second thing we've got to do, we've got to be people who are eager to preserve unity. 
How can we be an encouragement if we're going different ways? If we're at each other? Paul says we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Divisive people need to be told that they're being divisive. We can't, we can't settle for less than unity, church. You know, Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, he says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That's some strong language. Why, why is Paul so adamant that we are to preserve unity and deal with division? Well, unity is at the heart of who God is. We've seen it several different places in the book of Ephesians how Paul celebrates the Father, he celebrates the Son, he celebrates the Spirit, yet he affirms as one God. Because in the triune God, there is unity. One God, three persons. It's a mystery we can't comprehend, but nonetheless, it's true. Unity is at the heart of God, and unity is also at the heart of the gospel. We saw in chapter 2 how Jesus came and died for sins to make one new man. Not the Jewish people and the Gentiles. He came to bring us together and make us one. It's at the heart of the gospel. It's, the heart, it's at the heart of who we are. So we are to be eager to maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit has created when, he's, when, when He regenerated us. Paul goes on to list seven different aspects of unity that are found in the church. Look at verse 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Unity is at the heart of our Christian faith. There is one body. There are many local churches. There's some great churches in our community. We have New Life Covenant down the street, Armitage Baptist Church, New Hope, Grace and Peace, many wonderful churches in our community. They are local churches, but we are all one body with them. And God has given each of us a responsibility to be good stewards with the people in this congregation, but we're just part of a bigger thing that God is doing. There's one body, and there's one spirit. One spirit. See, the Holy Spirit, when we trusted in Jesus Christ, he entered in our lives. He gave us a new life. He gave us a new birth. And He sealed us. One Holy Spirit has done that in every Christian for all of eternity. So we can't divide one another up. He said, just as we we're called to one hope, every Christian throughout the world hopes for the day when Christ will descend. He'll part the clouds. And He's going to come back. And we will ascend to be with Him for all of eternity Every Christian in the world shares that one hope. We also have one Lord, Jesus Christ. He's our only Savior. He's the only mediator between God and man. He's the one Lord that we worship. And we have one faith, and that's in Him, in Jesus Christ. We have one baptism. We were united with Jesus, all of us, when we trusted in Him. And when we were baptized in water, it's a reflection of the spiritual thing that God had already done in us. This is a unifying thing that God is doing in all Christians. And we have one God and Father of all. The God of this universe. The Father of all. See, unity is at the heart of God. And we live in a culture that's so eager to divide up the church. 
to compromise the truths. See, these are, these are theological concepts that Paul lays out here. These are, these are truths that are foundational to, to our faith. And if we are led to compromise even the least one of these, we're going to compromise what's at the heart of God, and that's unity. And our culture is constantly trying to challenge different aspects. Oh, maybe they want to challenge whether or not Jesus is God, or whether the Holy Spirit is true, or whether our faith is the only faith and our hope is the only hope. But we have one hope, one faith, one Lord, one Spirit, one baptism, one God the Father. And we've got to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace if we're going to grow up as a church. Well, the third thing Paul says then is we also have to use our gifts to help each other grow in Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't leave us to our own devices. Again, we we mess up all the time. We, We don't have the wisdom to figure things out by ourselves, but God has given us the greatest gift, His Holy Spirit. And He's given us each spiritual gifts. And that's what Paul's going to talk about in the next few verses. Look at verse 8 with me here. I'm sorry, go back to verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let's stop there for a moment. But grace was given to each one of us. Say each one of us. Each one of us, say it again. Each one of us have been given a gift from God by His grace. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. If you are a child of God today, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've surrendered your own life, God's Spirit dwells inside of you, and He's given you a gift. Now, we can't boast in it because He's given it to us. You see, it was given to us. But you have a gift. And look what Paul does. He, quote, or he refers to Psalm 68 to solidify his point. He says, therefore, in verse 8, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he has also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, we've got to track with this here because, like, Paul, you're confusing me here. He refers to Psalm 68, and this is why. In Psalm 68, it's a psalm written by David celebrating God's deliverances that he's given to his people. He's celebrating how God has pleaded for the orphan, how God has protected the widow, how God has been victorious over the enemies of God. And in Psalm 68, it says that God will ascend to, his, to Mount Zion. He will go up his mountain, and he will lead the enemies captive. And that's what kings did in those days. When they conquered a nation, they took back prisoners, and they rocked those prisoners through their land, showing that we won that battle. And it's like God does that with the enemies of God. And David was celebrating that. And when Paul reads Psalm 68, he says, there's a parallel here. You see, Jesus ascended into heaven, didn't he? And his ascension was a declaration that he had victory over the enemies of God. He conquered Satan. He conquered death. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven 40 days after. And he holds these spiritual beings captive. And Paul's saying, there's a parallel here. And to say that Jesus ascended into heaven, well, it implies that he descended. That means he became a man. 
So Paul's just, he's, he's kind of wallowing in these thoughts. He's saying, man, Jesus, who is God, became a man, walked this earth, conquered death on a cross to save humanity, rose from the dead to conquer it, and ascended into heaven, and showing that he's victorious, he brings the captives, the spiritual beings, saying, no, you couldn't hold me down. And Paul adds, and he left us with gifts to continue the work that Jesus has purchased for us. Now, there are four different chapters in the Bible that talk about spiritual gifts. And this is one of them. The other ones are 1 Corinthians 12. Then there's Romans 12 and then 1 Peter 4. And I remember that because Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and in chapters 4 are both 1 Peter and Ephesians. And there's some 20-something different gifts that are mentioned in these four chapters. And there are probably even more than that. And it's important for you and I to know what our spiritual gift is. Because what Paul's about to say here is, we need to use our gifts to grow up the body, to encourage one another, to build each other up. Now, specifically here, in verse 11, he mentions five gifts. Or gifted peoples, if you will. And he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And he gave them for this purpose, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, apostles were those who were sent out, kind of like missionaries, to go places and start churches. Prophets were those whom God has given a special wisdom to understand His Word and declare it, telling the future sometimes, sometimes just telling God's judgment. Evangelists were those who just had a keen way of declaring the good news. You might know some people like that. They could just lay out the gospel with such clarity. Say, man, that's amazing. That's so true. It's wonderful. They connect with people. God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be shepherds. That's those who nurture the flock, who ward off the wolves, who protect. And he gave some to be teachers, those who instruct according to the word of God. Paul lays out these five ministry roles, if you will, and says, what is their goal? Well, look at verse 13, verse 12, I'm sorry. Their goal is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, this is really important here. Paul has given these gifted leaders to equip the saints. So my question for you is, who are the saints? It's you. So as we apply this even to our own day, the leaders in our church pastors, elders, deacons, different leaders. Our job is to equip you so that you can do the work of the ministry. So often people think it's the leaders who are supposed to do the ministry. But that's not what Paul says here. We are to equip the saints, which is you guys, for the work of the ministry that God has called you to do. That's a beautiful picture. And that explains why we get up every single Sunday and preach the word. We're equipping you guys. We're pounding on the scriptures, giving you the truths of God's word, praying that his spirit would stir your heart to begin to think, God, what ministry are you calling me to do? Suddenly, there's no reason we should be checking out of any sermon. There's no reason we should be kind of just going off in la-la land. We've got to be focusing, saying, God, what ministry are you calling me to do? Because I'm being equipped as the word is being preached to do it. See, we are the actors, God is the producer. 
We are the players and God's the coach. We are the musicians and God's the conductor. And we take our cues from him to do the work he's called us to do. And every single actor studies the script. Every single player studies the playbook. Every single musician studies the sheet music. As every equipped believer in the body of Christ studies his word for the work of ministry. Good news, Bible church. God is calling us to be actively engaging what he is calling us to do and pursuing it. Now, some of you might be wondering, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. And there may be many of you here who feel that way. And what I would encourage you to do is open up those four chapters I mentioned to you. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Study those lists and say, God, which one, which one here have you called me to do? And a lot of times we can know what our gifts are by what we enjoy doing. We can know what our gifts are by the things that excite us. 